Uh, good morning. I'm talking to Dr. Begley. He is an archaeologist and a professor of anthropology, and he teaches wilderness survival courses. Uh, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Great. Um, so you wrote a book titled uh, The Next Apocalypse. Um, let's start by uh, making sure people are sufficiently concerned. What, what should we be worried about in terms of the apocalypse? Well, part of the reason that I wrote this was because you know, I mean, you can't turn around without running into some post-apocalyptic narrative, right? All the zombie movies or the prepper magazines or uh, things of that nature. And for me, part of the concerning part was that we were really thinking about it in a way that didn't parallel how anything had happened. And so, you know, when I think about things that might happen, the big one for me, of course, is climate change. Uh, and probably for most everybody else. That's uh, obviously the thing on the horizon that has the potential to really change things. Um, in addition to that, though, you know, there's political issues. The rise of authoritarianism everywhere uh, is, a, is a concern. I think, um, uh, you know, income inequality and just sort of general you know, unfairness, you know, at a certain point, the pitchforks come out. And so that is uh, uh, anything that's headed in that direction, I think should concern us. Yeah, yeah, and I totally agree. And I think you could tell a lot about a person by what they worry about. Um, and, and like you said, uh, concerns about the future, concerns about collapse and the apocalypse are, are pretty ubiquitous in our society, but different people have different visions of, right. of what that looks like. Um, so like on the right, you know, you, you'll hear a lot of uh, the terrorists are going to knock out our electric grid, you know, yeah. uh, or uh, some asteroid or something like that. So can, can you speak to that a little bit, the different the different fears that we have? Yeah. You know, when, when I um, started to write this and um, really sort of took a dive into this apocalyptic literature and film, and other things like the prepper vision of, of the future, it, it became clear that there's, you know, a couple of competing concerns and then some things that just kind of transcend all of that. But certainly one of the things that you get with a lot of um, what, you know, what I'll call the prepper culture is this conflation with sort of right-wing gun culture. And that, um, on one hand, it's sort of understandable. You, you know, protecting yourself or your family seems like a reasonable thing to think about. Uh, I think where the difference comes in between certain people's worldview is, first of all, what they perceive as a threat. Who is it that you're protecting yourself from? And how should you respond to people that aren't prepared? You know, and I think a lot of it comes down to that. Um, one of the things that became clear looking at some of these uh, uh, apocalyptic narratives or these prepper uh, um, magazines, for instance, was that to some degree being unprepared was just an unforgivable sin. You know, if you're unprepared, then, you know, tough. You don't deserve anything. But of course, when we look at the reality of who can prepare, what does it cost? What, who's allowed to do this? Um, what, you know, life circumstances allow you to prepare in certain ways? We see that you know, even if you were preparing for this kind of 
uh, apocalyptic scenario, which I think is probably not the scenario you'd see, it's uneven in terms of who does what. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite parts of your book, maybe um, maybe we'll get more into it later and maybe uh, uh, I can read or you can read uh, a particular excerpt around it is when you talk about sure. um, the, the fetishization of, of weapons and and the fact that in an apocalypse, if you're if you're if you're needing to use all those weapons, if your life is 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 gun battles, um, then what kind of level like what kind of survival is that? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, to put it in a, a sort of a, a, it, maybe this is a problematic way to think about it, but I mean, we've all played video games, right? You always lose eventually, no matter how good you are. You just can't have a system that relies on that kind of thing. And so, you know, while I imagine there's some possibility that certain things would arise, first of all, we see historically that people to some degree, rise to the occasion in a disaster. Um, in some of these narratives, I mean, you know, the 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 asteroids is still, you know, it's it's barely entered the atmosphere, and people have lost their humanity completely. Or you know, the electric grid has been down for fifteen minutes, and you know, people are now like in predatory gangs. Um, that's just not what we see. And one thing I always think about is uh, Hurricane Katrina. You know, you might remember this scenario where, you know, everybody's holed up at the Superdome, right? And authorities won't go there because the narrative is that they're afraid of this uh, sort of unruly crowd. And of course, there's racial and socioeconomic elements to all of that. Uh, and so Harry Connick Jr., <laughs> the singer, goes there, who's from New Orleans, of course, and is just lambasting the officials, standing there in the midst of these folks saying, there's no danger here. These are just people that need help. And uh, so, you know, part of this comes down to what you think is going to happen in these situations. Um, but we do know that in the aftermath of certain kinds of disasters, people really pull together. Now, how long that lasts, I don't, you know, Right. I don't know. I'm not sure there might be a, you know, a few days there, but um, um, that I think is uh, part of, of, of what you have going on there. What do you think you're going to need to defend yourself against? And how do you want to incorporate these other people into your scenario? Are they just going to be folks that you have to keep out? Are they going to be people that you bring into the fold? I mean, in my way of thinking, no matter how much I stocked up, I've got a few months of stuff. That's not enough. You have to have a constantly resupplied lifetime of things that you need. And you can't do that by yourself. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think we've already touched on a lot of a lot of points and threads that I, I hope we'll come back to. Um, you know, another one at this point uh, sure. is, is the idea of... Um, other other reasons, you know, political or, or, or psychological reasons that people really like to inhabit this this imaginative world um, yeah. of, of prepper culture. But yeah. if it's okay, I, I think we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I want to sort of sure. maybe leave with, with a personal reaction that I, I had sure. to the book. Um, okay. You know, we, I mentioned already people imagine imagine the apocalypse differently. Um, 
yeah. I, I grew up in the shadow of the Holocaust, you know, um, that that was the story I was, I was, you know, told and, and I, I knew Holocaust survivors from a very young age. And um, the, the idea of, of man's inhumanity to man as, as an apocalypse, um, the idea of, uh, you know, your apocalypse is another person's uh, defending their national honor, you know, defending their borders. Um, and, and I see that uh, all the time today, you know, because what scares me about an apocalypse is, is there an apocalypse that we don't know about? And, and to me, I think the answer is yes. I think, you know, uh, at least on small scales, maybe not on, on the, way, in the, term, the way the term is defined uh, or, or commonly used to mean a large scale collapse. But, um, you know, for example, just one personal example that, to, that, I, that I think about a lot is I'll see on social media what uh, people who are in misery, who are fleeing as refugees with their families and experiencing what to them is clearly a kind of apocalyptic collapse. And it will be with the, 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 the text, the subtitle of the, the poster saying, look at these dirty people trying to enter our country, you know, yeah. and th that terrifies me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're uh, a lot of good points there. One uh, important point is the scale, right? Um, do we need to talk about it at a certain scale or are we dealing with these apocalypses every day? on different different scales for different groups, different individuals even maybe. And, you know, I think that there's a point at which society's not threatened. So my personal misfortune would not, you know, probably wouldn't use that term. But certainly when you have groups uh, fleeing the aftermath of a hurricane or an earthquake or both, in the, you know, in the case of Haiti at some, at some points, um, yeah, you have that, and you have people that are asylum seekers, which, as, as we know, you cannot enter the country illegally when seeking asylum, no matter how you enter or where you enter. It's legal in the sense that that's how you seek asylum. You don't have to do it at a certain point. And you're right, you'll get, you know, the, the, the photo of the the border patrol guy on the horse, uh, you know, chasing down the, the Haitian guy that has, you know, a plastic bag full of food for, for his friends. Um, that sort of stuff is concerning too. And I think mentioning the, the, the Holocaust is also uh, uh, an important example because on one hand, you could see that as um, as uh, as an apocalyptic event, and certainly it was. Uh, on the other hand, you see how those sorts of things could, you know, sort of fly under the radar, um, as that did in certain parts of the world for a while, uh, of course. And so that's, um, um, I think that is certainly something to think about. What scale do we want to look at, and where is it happening? I mean, when I think about it, and I wrote about this uh, to some degree in the book, is when you see uh, uh, refugees moving into Europe and they're refugees from conflict, but they're also directly or indirectly climate refugees. And, um, you know, so are a lot of the people from uh, Central America that are coming uh, to the States. You know, it's, it's partly uh, economic policies and political uh, issues, but it is also uh, related to these other phenomena. 
Yeah. And one of the things I really liked about the book is um, a systems level analysis, or you might even say, uh, I might be misusing the term, but like a complex systems level analysis of, yeah. of these issues. And so in the, in the movie narrative, it's, it's an asteroid, you know, in the movie narrative, or, you know, you hear people talk about, uh, they're going to bomb our electric grid or something like that. But, but in reality, what I think is, is more scary is these, these feedback loops and these reinforcing cycles of, of, like you talked about already, you know, climate change to a refugee crisis to political instability, which reinforces, you know, a distribution of food problem, which creates more res- refugees, which can create more uh, xenophobic uh, reactions in other countries, which creates more right-wing populist governments, which create, you know, and, and, and a kind of a snowballing effect of all sorts of different um, forces uh, you know, mixing in, in this, in these like, you know, dramatic ways. Yeah. And that would be consistent with what we think we see archeologically in some of the examples um, that I used there, where sometimes it's really difficult to identify a cause that set it all off. And, you know, you might think, well, it's drought or it's warfare or it's uh, slavery in the case of the Roman uh, empire, or it's, um, uh, you know, some sort of economic thing. But then when we look more carefully and we see how varied it is around the region and we see how uneven these things are happening, it's clear that there are all these forces and ultimately what fails are these complex systems. And I think, you know, of course, we see that right now with the supply chain, right? Um, and that's where we have and this, you know, enormously efficient system, these giant ships that come into these harbors and these you know, remarkable systems to uh, uh, unload the containers and store those and put the new ones on. And then related to that, of course, you have the shipping and all of that. And when any of that gets bogged down, you realize that this efficiency comes with the price and the price is uh, a lack of flexibility, you know, and ultimately that's really what we see is the, the collapse of these systems. You know, now, um, uh, in some cases, other systems might have been able to weather the storm a bit better. Uh, you know, in the case of, I don't know, maybe an asteroid, maybe it's, uh, it's too much. But uh, in most of the situations we see, you're right, it's, it's happening at the systemic level and it's at a, at a large scale. And it's when those things go down that, that things really change. Yeah. Uh, in my circle of friends, you know, in my, every, every time I visit one of my friend's house, you know, one of the books most fe- featured most prominently is uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Sure. In my, in my circle of friends, you know, he's like a, like a thinking man's anthropologist or something like that. Yeah. You, uh, he also wrote a book uh, on a similar, similar theme. He, he has a book called Collapse. I haven't read it, um, but, but it comes up in your book. Um, sure. What, w- what are some of the, uh, limitations let's say of 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 the ways that some people tend to think about collapse in this uh in this in this you know, bibliography of books yeah well you know one of the things one of the things that prompted me to write this book and one of the things that a lot of uh, uh probably a lot of academics think but certainly a lot of archaeologists uh know is that it's it's sort of hard to get the message out and as popular as archaeology is you know, from the Indiana Jones images to the documentaries to just the, you know, what it evokes, there's really not that much popular archaeology that's out there. And if you were to cite the most popular book about archaeology, it would be Jared Diamond's, 
who's not an archaeologist. Right. And now he is a, a, an academic, of course, and um, but he's not an archaeologist. And one of the things that we're starting to see more and more is that there's something to being a specialist. Um, and it's just because of the time you spend with it and the people that you uh, talk to about it. Uh, and so, you know, for me or for, you know, a, a typical archaeologist, you spent years just reading and reading all of this stuff. You've experienced things in the field. You've done your own interpretations. You've presented to people. You've gotten back peer-reviewed articles that are, um, you know, uh, if you really want to lose faith in humanity, read the, read the reviews you get back from peer reviews. I mean, God, they can be rough. Mm -hmm. So this is what you're doing as, as a specialist. Right. And one of the hard things to do is to sort of come in and take on the mantle of a specialist and do it to the degree that that uh, uh, that somebody that has devoted that time can. And I think that's partly what you see with these shortcomings uh, with uh, a Jared Diamond's book, particularly in uh, in collapse, um, while there's a, a great value in producing something that um, reaches a lot of people and gets people to think about certain things and introduces uh, certain concepts. Um, it's also true that it, it falls victim to some of the things that I think um, an archaeologist would have, uh, would have been able to avoid. So uh, those things include uh, this tendency to talk about things as collapses. You know, one of the things, is, as you saw in my book, is that it's almost never a collapse. It's almost always something different. Now, that's not always true, and it can be locally uh, uh, certainly dramatic. But when we look at these things, there are these long processes and, um, and all of that. So I would say the, the biggest criticism or one of the big criticisms that archaeologists have levied against Jared Diamond's book is... Um, really the way things are conceptualized of. And, and so almost a priori, there's this idea that there are these collapses and we're gonna explain these collapses. Whereas it might've been more beneficial to examine exactly how this transformation took place and what does it say? And is that the right word? And if it is, how do we wanna define it in this case? Um, and I mean, there's a whole volume that archeologists wrote in response to, uh, uh, to that, um, and I think most of them are like me. They do, they do uh, appreciate uh, certain elements of it, but but understand that yeah, there's some there's some, there's some issues. Yeah, because it's such a, a, a negative word. It's such a judgmental word, you know, to to say that a civilization collapsed. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, yeah. There's no way around it. You failed. Right, and it might not right. have been experienced that way. You you know, it's one of the things you draw out. You know, because um, at, looking back on history, we don't necessarily know the timescales at which transitions happened um, and, and certain, you know, changes, political changes and, and social changes that could have been beneficial and, and, and can be seen as progress on the ground uh, from our from our limited historical perspective, you know, uh, might look like a collapse, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You can't help but think about, you know, I mean, go back to uh, Nazi Germany, you know, the 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 collapse there was certainly no tragedy. 
um, at least for most people and most of the world. And that um, it's hard to understand that what we see as transformations or as collapses might have been similar types of transformation where it was really freeing yourself from the yoke of this system or that system. And maybe doing something like we saw with the classic Maya in the in the ninth, uh, 10th century, where you you stop creating certain kinds of monuments, you stop living in certain kinds of uh, cities. Um, you know, maybe there's other ways to look at this. And that's that's part of the point. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to, to learn more about you a little bit. That was one of the things, that was one of my reactions to the book. Um, uh, Chris is uh, such an interesting, interesting guy. <laughs> and I would love to hear a little bit more. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and, 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 and what your childhood was like and, and what led you to this field of archaeology? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I'm from Kentucky. And um, I was, well, I was born in West Virginia. My mom's family's from the mountains. Well, West Virginia is all mountains. Uh, my father's uh, family from the mountains of Eastern Kentucky from Appalachia. And um, I grew up mainly in Lexington, which is where I live now. Uh, you know, which is sort of a normal cosmopolitan, small city, you know, college town. Um, and grew up mostly here and then in Knoxville, uh, Tennessee. And I think there were a couple of things that led to my interest uh, in archaeology. One was that here in Kentucky, there's a really strong community of archaeologists that had things like an amateur professional organization where you could, as an interested uh, high school student or college student, um, uh, maybe go out for a weekend excavation with some real archaeologists who are interested in showing what they do, teaching you to do it, developing an understanding or interest in it. That was part of it. Um, part of it was, you know, the excitement of sort of exploring up in the hills, uh, you know, where my grandparents lived in eastern Kentucky. You know, I mean, that was, um, it feels like I spent half my childhood there, even though I, I didn't live there. And, um, you know, to go up and there were, you know, abandoned mines that we would go into, which is, you know, a bad idea. Children, don't, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, but we would, uh, or you know, just find the vestiges of the past that were around. And all of that was really exciting. Um, Jacques Cousteau was a huge influence on me. And when I was a kid, maybe like most kids, uh, you know, I wanted to be a scientist. I didn't know you had to pick. I didn't know you had to specialize. And I thought, well, I want to be a scientist. I want to be a field scientist that goes out and discovers things and checks things out and um, um, has as part of what you do this uh, sort of uh, um, traveling to new places and, and looking at places where people haven't looked. And so that has been sort of a thread through the archeology span um, that I've done. But I would say that, uh, you know, what really ultimately led me down that path with meeting some real archeologists here in Kentucky. Uh, would you say you're hairy chested or hairy chinned? <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. Uh, referring to the, uh, uh, 
this uh, classification, unfortunate classification uh, from back in the 1940s of archaeologists as either the uh, sort of macho field type or the intellectual uh, theoretical type. Um, gosh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe sort of both, I guess. The, uh, certainly the attention that some of the stuff I do gets is for the adventurous um, part of it. It's out in the rainforest or, or underwater archaeology, which is uh, something I do now. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm a college professor, and so most of the time I'm teaching class and sitting at the computer, you know, like, like the rest of us. Uh, Herman Melville, in the beginning of uh, Moby Dick, he, uh, he asked the following questions. He says, why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why upon your first voyage, did you yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that your ship was now out of sight of land? Is that, does that resonate? Is there, is there a, a magnetic attraction to the, uh, to the wilderness or to the ocean? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, I mean, maybe you hit on it there. Maybe it is sort of this wilderness or this frontier or this horizon, right? Uh, for me, for instance, getting into uh, uh, maritime archaeology or underwater archaeology was something that I did later. And as somebody growing up in Kentucky, you know, I had experience with boats. I mean, we have uh, tons of waterways here, lakes and rivers. Um, but not in the same way as my colleagues that grew up in, you know, Key West or, um, you know, the coast of Carolina where, uh, or in Greece that have just a really different connection with this. But perhaps because of, of that, because it was something new for me, you know, that quote does resonate. You know, it is something that when you do, when you you know, for me, one, one really exciting thing is to go out, uh, uh, well, typically in the ocean, and find these shipwrecks that you're looking for, um, or maybe find some that you didn't know were there, because it is so vast, and it's so, in some ways, inhospitable, um, and uh, it, it, it is a, this sense of, uh, of accomplishment. So, you know, I can, um, yeah, that, I mean, I know where he's coming from with that quote for sure. Where is your work taking you? What can, what can you share with us? I mean, I'm sure it's taking you everywhere. I'm sure you've been, you've been to so many places, but what, give us an example. Okay, well, um, well, I'll just sort of go chronologically a little bit. Uh, you know, I started working, of course, uh, in Kentucky and around the southeastern U.S., um, and then when I've, uh, went to graduate school. I worked uh, first in, in Bolivia in the Andes, high in the mountains. Uh, then I switched to Honduras, where I worked for a long time, and I worked uh, in uh, neighboring El Salvador uh, uh, for a while there. And that's pretty much where I stayed uh, for the next, you know, decade or so. Well, where are you Most... living? Like you're staying in a in a hotel, in an apartment, there? Uh, you have a house there? Well, yeah, it depends. Um, well, I was in, in school in Chicago, so, you know, that would be sort of a home base. And typically an archaeologist will go out for a field season that's three or four months, 
usually the summer when you're not in classes, either teaching or taking them. Um, you know, and then you'll you'll come back and just dealing what you've done in those three months typically takes the other nine months. But when um, when I was doing my work for my doctoral dissertation, for instance, I lived in in Honduras for a year, and then I did a project in El Salvador where I uh, lived there for about two years. And uh, in that case, it really varies. Um, in Honduras, I lived in a, um, a village of one of the indigenous groups uh, called the Pesh. Uh, I lived in one of uh, their villages and worked a lot with those, uh, with those folks. And, you know, that was really different than where I lived in El Salvador, which was in an apartment in, uh, you know, sort of on the edge of San Salvador. And so, um, yeah, it's really varied. Sometimes when we work further out in the rainforest, of course, we have to camp. I mean, we essentially go on these extended trips for two to three weeks, three weeks about as long as you can go without being resupplied, which, you know, means coming back. Uh, to get more to get more food um, and you know in that case uh, it was just camping for uh, you know for that long which, are you out uh, there with friends colleagues um, strangers no in, in that case uh, well it, they were my friends at that point the uh, the pesh that that live in the village usually I was the only archaeologist and then the rest of the the people working on the project would be um, people that I enlisted from the village. And these were, um, you know, the guys that I lived with, uh, you know, the neighbors, different folks, usually somewhere between four to six of us would, would be on these trips. Um, and, you know, after a while, those were certainly my closest friends for a while there, because, you know, after you live in a a village for nine months and there's no uh, there's not much to do when you get back after working all day you know there's no electricity or tv or anything so you just talk to people and play cards and talk to people and talk to people and so I've probably never talked so much to uh, people as I have uh, in that year um, of, of living there so yeah that um, sorry did you learn the language yeah. Oh, well, I learned Spanish, not Pesh. Um, the, I learned some Pesh, but mostly most people in that village speak Spanish mm -hmm. um, normally. In fact, some people don't even uh, speak Pesh. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I learned uh, Spanish and, you know, that uh, uh, since that time is really probably the language I speak most. I mean, in my household here, my wife's from Honduras. We speak Spanish. Uh, that's about half and half. Do you miss that adventure? Do you miss that time you spent out there? Um, well, it never really ended until COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, I kept going back to do different things. Uh, and yeah, there's certainly things I miss about it because, um, um, you know, in some ways it was very simple in the sense that I had sort of a limited 
set of responsibilities and certain things that I wanted to do. And, you know, at that point I wasn't married, didn't have children. And so, uh, you know, life um, uh, is different. And uh, the adventurous part of it was uh, very exciting going to these new uh, places and having people show you things and, uh, and all of that. But since that time, you know, I've gone back to do more work in that region. Uh, I've also participated in a lot of uh, sort of cultural or ecotourism, uh, taking classes or other groups through the rainforest. Um, and then mostly it has now switched to uh, underwater archaeology for me, which is, which is different, but, um, you know, still... Uh, to me, exciting in all those in all those ways. Mm -hmm. Does that give you some insight into why people fetishize or, or fantasize about collapse, a return yeah. to the rustic, a return to the the freedom of uh, surviving on your own in the wilderness? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, for me on these extended trips out to the rainforest, I mean, if we'd just been able to be in, be resupplied. I, could have just done that forever. You know, it was, it was not uncomfortable. It was, um, you know, all your energy is put towards these sort of basic fundamental tasks or even back in the village. Now, of course, for the people living in the village, life is as complicated as it is for any of us. But for me, because I was there sort of with a specific purpose and, uh, um, uh, didn't have the same kind of household responsibilities as most people did. Um, you know, for me, it was a relatively simple existence in the sense that, you know, you just got your work done and got the, you know, the fire started or whatever. And so, yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, that I think is a part of uh, what, might have given me some insight into this because I do understand it. And in fact, our sort of incorrect fantasies would suit me completely. Yeah. You know, it's, they're just not the way it's going to work out, but, uh, you know. You've traveled widely. You've met a lot of people. You, you've had all these experiences. Um, what have you learned? What, what, what do those experiences give you that someone like me who hasn't had those experiences uh, doesn't know? Um, well, I'm not sure it, it teaches me something you don't know, but you do, you know, it's able to confirm certain things. Um, the first is that, you know, in this paradoxical way, you know, people are remarkably different and remarkably similar. And so there's certainly, um, I had no problem from my perspective um, living with and being friends with and being part of a group of people in uh, that Pesh village. Uh, I had no problem working with, um, uh, you know, group of Greek students in, in Greece. The, um, there's this, uh, you know, there's the, the, this shared humanity, of course, that, that's always there. But at the same time, people really are uh, different in these fascinating ways. And I mean, in some ways, it sounds like I'm trying to describe what anthropologists do. There's a, um, um, 
a quote that we often use that the you know, purpose of anthropology is uh, to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange, to point out how alike you are with certain things and how different things are than you sort of think about them from your limited perspective and your uh, uh, sort of a, a close viewpoint. So, um, you know, that's sort of uh, uh, answering it on a general level. On a more specific level, I would say the thing that I always notice is just how clever and capable people are of solving problems. Um, you know, which again, doesn't sound like a particular insight into, uh, into humanity, but uh, just the way that, uh, you know, the, the things people come up with uh, to do things. Um, you know, the other thing is the sort of the, um, the, the kindness that you see a lot, especially when you're a stranger, when you're somebody that's struggling with the language or culture shock or a lack of familiarity with something, or you're just doing it all wrong. Uh, the ways in which people have pointed that out and corrected uh, what I was doing has been by and large uh, uh, just remarkably kind. And so that I think is something that you would see. Um, you know. I, I have a tremendous amount of appreciation and respect for academia and academics. Um, I have multiple, many close relationships with professors and uh, I get the thrill of talking to them on this YouTube channel, for example. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, but, but in America today, there seems to be a very deep skepticism around academics, around academia. You know, I can think of all sorts of examples. Uh, yeah, there's sure. you know, one thing in the news coming up now about all these like this like group of you know, intellectual dark web types who are trying to start their own university, which is going to be a bastion of free thought. Um, you know, these are people who like, uh, think ivermectin is going to solve COVID and whatever, uh, it's climate change deniers on the uh, board, but whatever, we don't need to make it too specific. Uh, how do you understand that sort of culture war? Um, how do you, how do you think about that, that culture war that's going on in America? Well, I think the first thing thinking about it as a, as an anthropologist would be when you see things that don't make sense, when people are being hypocritical or when they seem to be irrational. My first thought is, how is it then that this makes sense? Um, if people are saying one thing and doing another thing, I, I suspect often that the conversation is not in good faith. They're not really saying what they're thinking. They're saying what they think they can get away with saying maybe, or what you wanna hear or something to shut you up. But the subtext is different. And then they do something that doesn't go along with what they say. But if you understand it as a uh, not a sincere conversation, sometimes you can find out what's really going on. Similarly, with some of the things that seem irrational, uh, anti-vax uh, movement or the ivermectin thing or the, you know, uh, uh, chloroquine before that. You know, for me, uh, the issue would be, what is it that makes that a desirable choice for these folks? Let's imagine that if there are enough of them, that they're not all 
somehow deficient in critical thinking skills. Um, rather, they're making these decisions for some reason. What is it that has driven them away from this other thing? Or, what, or, or why is this division happening? Is it something that's being, is there a wedge being driven by somebody else for political purposes? Is it that one side has alienated another side and all that? And you know, when you come to acad academia, I can see where it could be very off-putting, right? The uh, this sort of self-proclaimed uh, expertise, this uh, creating of a system where somehow you're not allowed to do it, but I'm allowed to do it because I have these credentials. I mean, think about archaeology. Um, uh, to do archaeology in most places, you have to get permits and you have to get permission. And to do that, you have to have a certain level uh, of education and experience, and that's just not available to everybody. We know that. And so right there, you can see the roots of some real problem. I mean, a problem for archaeology, but also a problem sort of in public relations. And uh, for me, when I see this rift happening, or I see this anti-intellectual movement, you know, uh, I would want to understand it. And of course, if you're looking at the United States, you're going to go back to our history as um, uh, where at least this rhetoric of being anti-elitist uh, was and rugged individuals and all that was part of our um, uh, part of our culture. And we certainly prefer the hairy chested to the hairy chinned. And so if you're the hairy chinned, academics, to some degree, you're up against all of our mythical national history that we want to think about ourselves. Um, uh, and, you know, there's going to be some elements of that in other places, uh, obviously, Australia uh, and the UK comes to mind. Um, so, you know, that's why when we talk about Jared Diamond's book, for all the shortcomings, I think we need to uh, understand the value in creating something that has a reach beyond um, uh, academia, uh, whether you're uh, an academic trying to do that through sort of popular science writing or a science writer or a journalist, um, you know, all of that feeds into exactly, I think, this, this division that you're talking about. So, um, you know, I think academia and um, people in the academy have a lot of work to do to um, make sure that what they're doing has the reach to create the kind of impact that it can, you know. Um, we see this in some arenas. I mean, you look at econo uh, economists from the 1970s. I mean, neoliberal capitalism is, you know, that came out of academia um, in terms of the, you know, the theories. And you look back at uh, Milton Friedman, some of the other folks, you, you don't see that same effectiveness in, in some other arenas, um, whether it's, you know, psychology and dealing with, uh, you know, mental health, or whether it's uh, something like historians or archaeologists trying to suggest that we can, in fact, learn from the past, and that uh, you know these the the resources that allow us to do that are important. Yeah, 
America is a divided country right now. Um, that's my experience of it. You know, other people might mm-hmm. disagree or have different experiences of it. Yeah. Uh, what what does that pretend? What what is the how do you think about those divisions? How do you think about the future of those divisions? Are, are things are things bad? Are things good? What's your what's your no, perspective? No, things are bad, and uh, and I think they're going to get worse. And I don't think there's really sort of a happy ending to all this stuff that's going on right now. Um, I think there's probably no turning back from the problems that climate change is going to create. Um, there's not going to be a way or maybe even a desire to save some of these inequitable systems. I mean, right now, we're able to use the rhetoric of freedom or, you know, those people to create some buy-in to this uh, kind of late-stage capitalism. But sooner or later, the reality of not being able to go to the doctor or afford your house or send your kids to be educated, um, that's going to transcend these divisions. And then there's the real problems uh, are going to start, I would say. Um, And so, you know, again, what I would always look for is what's creating these divisions and what, what are the elements that divide us? I mean, is it race? Is it socioeconomic class? Is it um, the, the, the diversity of your community? Is it the nature of your work? Um, and none of this stuff has happened by accident. None of this is like, uh, you know, a wave that must crash into the shore and you can't stop it. All of this stuff are the result of choices. We don't have to be that way. We haven't always been this way. Um, and part of what we see when we look at, uh, I don't know, sort of, sort of this, you know, pop anthropology of, you know, this is how people are, or these are how societies are, or complex societies, or capitalism. In some ways, we can look at that as an excuse, you know. Yeah, we don't have to do anything about the inequality. We don't have to do anything about the injustice or the racism or the patriarchy if we think that's just how people are. Um, but we know that it's not. That is not how people have to be. And, um, you know, uh, these divisions are coming from somewhere and they're being created or exacerbated. Uh, by political forces, by the media, um, or or maybe using the media uh, for certain ends. And they work for certain people at certain times, but there's going to be a point where a lot of this stuff just doesn't work. I would love to end on on one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, Towards, it's towards the, I think it's in the conclusion or or thereabouts. Um, You're talking to, I think, a friend. And the friend asks you, what are you going to do when, when the apocalypse happens? And the, the subtext of the question is, you know, where are you going to go? And, and uh, what, are you, what are you going to bring with you? Um, how, how do you answer a question like that? Yeah, the, uh, um, well, I had to answer it, uh, you know, in, the, in the, uh, the only way you could answer it, which is to say, there's nowhere to go. You can't escape it there's no heading to the hills and you know uh, uh 
sort of waiting it out with your family or there's no place that you can escape to like you know Denmark or somewhere it's it's uh, everywhere plus I think for a lot of us um, you recognize that when things go wrong there's just going to be enormous need everywhere uh, I mean including for us but uh, you know you want to go where you're in a position to contribute to the solution, to help folks, to do what needs to be done. And so, you know, the way I answered that question was uh, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to stay here and deal with it. And um, that's not as fun an answer as I'm going to, you know, head up to the hills and build a camp. But uh, that's, that's what's, I think that we have no choice. Yeah. That's what we have to do at the end of the day, you know, we'll, we'll only have each other and, um, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have to work together. And, yeah. and that's the truth. That is true. Professor Chris, thank you so, so much um, thank, thank for your you. time this morning. Uh, this this yeah. has been really wonderful. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking me. And, uh, I'm glad to do it.